The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That is gracebible.faith. So some of you have asked about the progress and the nature of my week, and I appreciate that. (laughs) But I have to be honest, um, I was holding back. Um, I didn't want to burden any of you with the, I'd say the rather distressing insight that came by way of an unsolicited email on Tuesday. And look, I know we all have blind spots. I try to mention that every so often, that you, you have to be, you have to have a self-awareness, you have to have an awareness that, yes, this is a good church, but we have blind spots. As individuals, faithful, we have blind spots. And perhaps because of this, um, one of you, maybe Andre, perhaps, but I don't know, I don't know how much emailing he would do, but um, nevertheless, maybe one of you saw something that merited putting a particular email, or putting me on a particular email list for my greater good, and even for the greater good of the church. Because truthfully, I did not know. I had no idea that someone had locked up my leadership potential. How and when or why, I don't know, but they did. However, after having received an email on Tuesday, I now know that there are some nice folks out there who have offered to help me unlock it, to unlock my leadership potential. Again, I don't know how or why it got locked up. I don't know why it was restrained or restricted, but thankfully there's good folks out there to help. Now, what this will mean for you or for me is a magnificent mystery of good fortune. And perhaps they'll help me cultivate a vision for my, quote, my ministry. Now, while I hope a qualification is not necessary here, I rarely will pass the opportunity to give one. You might ask me something and I want to explain, and then I want to explain why I'm explaining, and then I want to continue on from there. And so I hope that it's not necessary, but at the risk of disappointing some of you, I'm not anxiously pursuing the keys to unlock my leadership potential. Um, It's probably restrained or restricted, but actually this is probably about as good as it gets. Emails and and conferences aside, I don't know that we're going to improve upon it. But this language prodded my thoughts, which were really swimming in Paul's words in Philippians this week. And it made me think about the nature of Paul's leadership and the nature of how leadership is too often spoken of among pastors. And this might sound peculiar to you, because it is. Because especially when leadership's talked about in this way, when, they're, when it comes to leading, quote, their churches. And as I stated, I enjoy qualifying matters, perhaps too much. But to be clear, I don't want a church. There's no my church. It's Christ church. It's not my church. It's built on the foundation of the preaching of his gospel. And if we understand that, then one's leadership potential is already unlocked. And now just needs to be cultivated and matured. But there's always, it seems like a gimmick. And my personal opinion is that the language of one's, quote, pastoral vision may well fall into that disposable category of things I wish that we would just do without. Vision, again, if you run in enough certain circles or go to certain conferences or read certain material, vision is a popular thing among many pastors. But it's a curious thing when pastors talk about their vision, not their ability to see, which diminishes over time, unfortunately, not their ability to see or images that came to them in the evening hours, like, wow, the, the Lord gave me something. That's not what they're talking about, but rather their ambitious plans for the kingdom, my, my vision for the church. And apparently, These are plans that have been customized for their uniquely useful role for the care and progress of the church. Some will even express a concern from time to time. What will come of their vision should something happen to them? Well, I suppose it will suffer the same fate as their predecessor's vision. Someone else will come in with their own great schemes and plans and how things ought to be. So it's a curious thing to me, this grand view of leadership, a grand view of pastoral leadership that I truthfully wish would just go away. I wish that people would stop training pastors to have these grand ambitions for their unique branding of the kingdom, to stop cultivating, quote, their ministry, quote, for their churches, and that this whole mess would be replaced by a grand view of shepherding. But if, it must speak, but if we must speak of a vision for ministry, then it ought to be this, that Christ be preached. That's a really clear vision for the function and desire and goal of the church. And it seemed to be good enough for Paul, and personally, I'm not one to improve upon Paul even when he confuses me some or leaves me in a a place of tension with his great joy, such as he will do for us today in verses 12 through 18, we're going to get to the conclusion and be like, that joy, I I can't reconcile that. Thankfully, we didn't stop earlier. We'd really be confused. But even so, I'm not going to improve upon him. 
And so when his vision and his goal and his ambition is not for his church, but Christ's church, and what does it drive him to? That Christ be preached. Then I think maybe that's what we ought to settle with as well. But before we engage in this most intriguing valuation of circumstances that Paul gives us here, and, and how they ultimately led to an eruption of joy, let's briefly refresh ourselves on how we got here. So we've worked our way through the introductory portion of the letter. That spanned from verses 1 through 11. In this, we observed the foundational elements of Paul's relationship to the Philippian believers who were fellow co-laborers in his gospel ministry, a ministry that had for some years now taken the form of a proclamation while in chains. We also observed Paul expressing an extraordinary affection for these believers, and with this, we gave special attention to the fact that this affection drove him to prayer for them, prayer that had a view to their sanctification and Christ's glory. And now with verse 12, he transitions to the body of his letter and opens with a report of his present circumstances and, more importantly, the progress of the gospel. So let's now give our attention to the first portion of Paul's report in verses 12 through 18. In verses 12 through 18, oh, excuse me there. We don't want to jump past our two slides. Verses 12 through 18, he writes, Now I want you to know, brothers, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my chains in Christ have become well known through the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord because of my chains, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me affliction in my chains. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. This is a challenging passage. It's challenging in part because there are a number of details that are disputed among friends. Details such as the the nature of the Praetorian Guard. Is that a reference to soldiers guarding Paul or a physical structure? Details such as the identity of those who are opposing him. Is he calling them brothers? Details such as the nature of the offense of the opponents. Is he willing to allow this this offense to go unanswered? And we'll bring a measure of resolution to some of these matters, but not all of them. And there's a danger here. A danger that we can get too caught up in the challenging elements, some to be resolved, resolved, others to be left open. So how ought we to approach this text? We ought to approach this text knowing that it will not yield simple answers to complicated experiences, and that we can have a measure of unresolved tension while also experiencing a superior measure of great joy. And that joy is to be not only the final, but the firmest and clearest word here. So let's calibrate our approach with a view to the end where Paul states, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Okay, we know what we're walking into now, and we know that where we must finish. We know that it's going to be difficult, it's going to be challenging. Some of it's because of technical matters, some of it because of relational matters, and some of it we're just not going to be able to resolve, but we know where we're heading, that Paul's going to end landing with, come what may Whatever happens, Christ is preached, and in that, that I rejoice. So let's begin with Paul's opening here. Now I want you to know, brothers, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Now, I've already tipped my hand a bit regarding some matters, but let's consider this use of brothers here. This is the first use of brothers in an already relationally intense book, and in some ways perhaps carries more weight than the shared relationships discussed up to this time. And what I mean by this is that Paul identified himself and Timothy as slaves of Christ, but only the two of them. Now, implicitly, he's expressing that the Philippians are slaves of Christ too, but I'm only speaking to the explicit relationships up to this time. He then identifies the Philippian believers as saints, but again, he does not directly so identify himself as a fellow saint. Implicitly, he does, but we're only speaking to the explicit for a moment. Now, following these more personal identifications, Paul does bring himself and the Philippians into a relational unity by way of their shared fellowship in the gospel and their being fellow partakers with them in the grace of a chained gospel ministry. But now, now we've come to brothers. 
a relational unity that drives deeper than shared experiences and service. They are family as they've been united together in a new birth through the finished work of Christ. And this is a a sweet bond that they share. And so referencing it here further rounds out the expression of their relationship. They're not only partners, as it were, but brothers. They're family. And I want you to appreciate this identity accordingly. And appreciating it here, we have to also so appreciate it when we advance to verse 14, which will be easy enough until we come to realize that this identity also carries through verses 15, 16, 17, and 18 too, where it will create an uncomfortable tension for us. But that will come soon enough. For now, we draw on the sweetness of this intimately shared identity of brothers. And part of this relationship is expressed in a reciprocating care and awareness of one another's progress and work. Here Paul wants or desires for them to know of his personal circumstances, which Epaphroditus could also speak to upon his return. So there's something of this report that he wanted them to hear directly from himself. So again, we know Epaphroditus is going ahead. Timothy will come shortly thereafter, and then Paul plans to come. But he has something that he doesn't want to just send through Epaphroditus. He wants them to hear it from him. And in this personal report, he saw particular value in specifically sharing the nature of the progress of his gospel and chains ministry, of which they share a partnership. Again, a matter that Epaphroditus could speak to, but Paul plainly wants them to hear from him regarding these critical matters. And in such, he's also directing them in how to think about them properly. And that's very important because this gets really hard and the waters get really murky. And he says, this is how you think about this. And you do it not with frustration. And you do it not with uh, a merging of, I'm, I'm fearful. I'm fearful for Paul. I'm fearful for the advance of the gospel. No, he's saying, set frustration and fear aside. Hear from me and know that this is the conclusion I'm going to drive you to. There's the progress of the gospel. And this is how I want you to end with joy. Not with frustration, not with fear, but with joy. Now, he will later turn his attention to an interest in their welfare too. But for now, the focus is on Paul's personal report about that which is preeminent of preeminent importance to him and a matter of no small concern to the Philippians, namely, again, the progress of the gospel as this beloved champion of its message is in chains. It's a reasonable update. How are you doing, Paul? You're, you're the champion of the gospel to the Gentiles, and you're in chains. So how do we understand that? And we're aware that he's enduring assaults. Well, that's part of the territory for Pauline ministry. Assaults from within the ranks of the church, though. Now, that's a peculiar experience that I don't know we're going to fully resolve. But the Philippians are aware of this. They're aware that Paul's in chains, the gospel's being assaulted, Paul's being assaulted, or actually the gospel maybe is not being assaulted, but Paul certainly is, and this by fellow brothers? They need to hear directly from him. Don't be fearful, don't be frustrated, be joyful. Further, while a report on the gospel, it's also very much a personal report. As Gordon Fee observed, quote, Paul's personal life is so completely taken up with his calling that to reflect on how his imprisonment has furthered the gospel is to reflect on his life. So if you want to know about the advancement of the gospel, you're getting Paul's biography. Now, any student of the New Testament letters would plainly conclude that the gospel is what defined Paul's work and service. It was at the heart of the partnership between Paul and his ministry partners, as we observed in verses 5 through 7. Excuse me, 5 and 7. Quote, because of your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Again, that's what, that's what identified their relationship in terms of that the gospel bound them together. Your, your fellowship, your fellowship in the gospel from the first day till now. That was verse 5. Verse 7, For it is only right for me to, feel, to think this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are fellow partakers with me in this grace. Again, things that we work through, things that we, we uh, give special time and attention to, but you can see the unifying nature of their work was gospel-centered. It was how he viewed his closest relationships, as we'll observe in chapter 2, when he states of Timothy, quote, But you know of his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. And it was at the center of his high praise for those in need of reconciliation within the church, as we'll see in chapter 4. Indeed, I ask you also, genuine companion, help these women who have contended together alongside of me in the gospel, with also Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. 
And as we will soon see, it was the standard by which he expected believers to be marked and live. Only live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear about your circumstances, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, contending together for the faith of the gospel. That's 127. So it was most natural that to hear an update from Paul, one would receive an update regarding the progress of the gospel. However, the progress of the gospel at this time was framed by a most unanticipated providence, a providence that might naturally appear to be not a means of progress, but an obstruction, if not outright hindrance. So there was some clear intentionality to the framing of this update. It was one of how the gospel was continuing to forge new territory. It was the language of a unit that advances before the army, cutting the path for their marching forward. And here, we could once more imagine perhaps the Philippian jailer and his believing family hearing these words, and it it probably hit them just a little bit differently as they remembered, remembering that the gospel advanced to them because of another of the gospel's unexpected advancements while in chains. Or perhaps the larger assembly was dwelling on the particular, uh, peculiar providence that gave Paul an audience to governors and kings and, and many others along his journey to Rome from the time of his incarceration in Jerusalem and through Caesarea and all the way to getting to Rome. Maybe they were thinking about the fact, yes, the gospel has advanced. Paul has stood before governors and a king and he stood before others. And so it's clearly advancing even while in chains. They've come to see some fruit with such things. And I'm sure Paul would have affirmed these wondering thoughts of the Philippian jelly. Yes, you're right. It was those early chains that you know, gave gospel testimony to you and your family. And, and yes, Philippians, more broadly, it definitely is the gospel testimony that it's advanced from Jerusalem all the way to Rome. But he would then remind them that there is more to be said here. There's a report regarding the gospel's greater progress now in Rome, as he stated again, my circumstances, my present experience My present experiences have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel so that my chains in Christ have become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. Now, maybe that doesn't sound extraordinary because you're so familiar with it, but it's rather extraordinary. It's extraordinary because it is the gospel and it's the gospel advancing among the the Praetorian Guard. You know, we try to, to reach out to local law enforcement community. It's hard to get into that. We try to reach out into different groups. It's hard to get in. Some people try to reach out. Uh, my roommate in college loved uh, the, the, the gospel advancing to military, and it's hard to get into that. And here Paul saying, my testimony, the gospel's testimony, is advanced to the whole Praetorian Guard, the, the top of the, the military units here from the, within Rome and beyond. But I suppose we should expect as much, because as we plainly observed in our work back in verse 7, when working through the accounts within the book of Acts that covered from the time of Paul's arrest through the time building up to his awaiting his appearance before Caesar, that his chains were on account of the hope of the resurrection. He made that clear time and time and time again. It's not because of political unrest. It's not because I've done anything. It's not because I'm leading uh, some insurrection. It's because of the hope of the resurrection. They were chains bore for the testimony of the gospel, a message that was shared again time and time again before governors, kings, and soldiers. Over and over again, he plainly established that his chains were not on account of any true offense outside of the offense of Christ crucified and risen. Now, in this update, he shares of the advancement of the gospel among both his captive and his elective audiences in Rome. Paul's captive audience were those of, again, no less standing than the Praetorian Guard who were tethered to him while he awaited his hearing and final adjudication before Caesar. So you can imagine this relationship. The man who you are chained to for for four to six hours a day. So again, somebody, how was your day? Well, I had this one prisoner. What what was he like? I'm kind of curious. You got some weird ones sometimes. Well, this guy, he prays without ceasing. He declares a hope that supersedes anything that we have now. He cares for others. He's so gentle. He's so kind. He's a different one. That's who they're tethered to for four to six hours a time. He's declaring the excellencies of Christ. You know, we try to creatively find these opportunities. Perhaps 
striking up a conversation on a bus or a plane. Because what are they going to do? Maybe on a bus they can jump out on the next stop, but on a plane there's nowhere to go. And you might be that guy or that lady that, oh my goodness, you get your really, maybe you get your family Bible out and so it fills up the whole tray and maybe it spills over to their side and be like, oh, sorry, it's God's word, it'll be okay. And, and then maybe you start trying to share the gospel with them or maybe you're more savvy and you, you um, provide a, a tract or, or you just, you, you're shrewd and you find these opportunities. I, I remember, um, Bernika, I don't know if this, you've had a like experience, but I've, I remember I was riding Uber with somebody and, and they were very skilled. This other person was very skilled and they just started talking to our driver about the things of the Lord. And I thought, well, there was a skill to it. And I, I appreciated that. And we try to find these opportunities, these little pockets of, of engagement. You know, used to be go to door to door, but that kind of doorbell cameras have destroyed that opportunity. Now they can just push the button, go away. Um, but, or again, you try to engage a stranger. I've, I've walked Fairburn for many miles now and just hope that, why wouldn't you want to talk to me? I mean, but nevertheless, we, we try, we try to engage people. Perhaps working with the nerve to have a long conversation with a friend or loved one at the table or sitting in the car in the driveway or just on a long walk, we, we, long, we try to find these opportunities because we, we love others enough and we love Christ and we love the gospel enough. But here, Paul has a soldier, one soldier after another soldier bound to him. This wasn't a, well, time, to, time, time for, for you to be tethered, Paul. And this is a night and day context and soldier after soldier after soldier bound to a man who prayed, preached, and pleaded with others that they would see, submit, and be slaves of Christ. Christ who died and is resurrected. So of course his chains for Christ have become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard. Now, I stated earlier that there's some measure of dispute among friends regarding a proper understanding of the Praetorian Guard. Let me briefly address this for you. The, the Praetorian also can be used in reference to a government building, such as we see in the gospel and in Acts. So maybe you remember in, in Mark chapter 15, uh, Jesus' trial there. Mark, in Mark 15, 16, we read, So the soldiers took Jesus away into the palace, that is, the praetorium, and they called together the whole Roman cohort. Okay, well, okay, there's a geographical location, the building at that point in time. Well, what about Acts? Acts 23, 34 to 35, we read, and when he had read it, he asked for what province he was, uh, from what province he was. And when he learned that Paul was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing after your accusers arrive also, giving orders for him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. Okay. So again, obviously these references or this reference in Acts and in Mark involves Paul and other, and Jesus and Paul. And, and so some have viewed this as, oh, that's a support to a location and time that, that puts his writing other than in Rome. So maybe he was in Caesarea or in Ephesus, and, and he's, he's having a measure of influence within the, the praetorium, that, that physical location. However, the imperial guards came to be known as the praetorian guard, and such was the case at the time of his writing. So in view of this, in the larger context, it would plainly appear to be a reference to those who were assigned to guarding Paul. Now, understanding that, these were soldiers, that directed my thoughts to a few other soldiers in the scriptures too, as these were uh, these others, they weren't seeing Christ through someone. They actually saw Christ himself. So these were seeing Christ through Paul, but some saw Christ himself. So give me just a moment. We'll sidebar, but we'll come back. So for just a moment, consider a few soldiers who got a clear view to Jesus during his public ministry. First, there was the centurion who stated, quote, Lord, I am not good enough for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this man, go. And he goes, and to this one, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. Matthew 8, 8 to 10. Now, why did this man have such great faith? Well, I'm convinced because he saw and heard Jesus, and seeing and hearing, he believed. Now consider the centurion overseeing Jesus' crucifixion in Matthew 27, 54. Now the centurion and those who were with him, keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became frightened and said, truly this was God's son. Now why would this man cry out with such weighty words? Well, I'm convinced because he saw and heard Jesus. 
These, these soldiers saw and heard Jesus, and they could not help but to be changed. And what do we consistently try to press upon you here? That you are being equipped to do the work of ministry where the Lord has providentially placed you. You are putting feet and hands to truth. You are showing that what we wrestle with and cherish, that it really works. You are showing others what an ambassador of Christ looks like in the range of life experiences. And that is exactly what Paul has done here. He was, living, he was a living demonstration of Christ in chains to soldier after soldier after soldier, demonstrating that he may be the one in chains, but they were the captive audience, recipients of a profound grace. But they were not the only beneficiaries of the gospel in chains here. As Paul states, my chains in Christ have become well-known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. Everyone else, presumably included all of their parties in proximity to him, namely those who were in Rome. And we get a, a clear view to this at the conclusion of Acts, where we have a broad account of the season of his life during which he wrote Philippians, a time that while incarcerated, he had a measure of liberty to receive guests and engage with them. So we're going to pick up a few pieces of Acts chapter 28, 17 to 20 would be the first one. And it happened that after three days, Paul called together those who were the leading men of the Jews. And when they came together, he began saying to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of Romans. And when they had, been, and when they had examined me, they were willing to release me because there was no ground for putting me to death. But when the Jews objected, I was forced to appeal to Caesar, not that I had any accusation against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I requested to see you and to speak with you, for I am wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. So we see the, the testimony of his gospel and chains advancing to, these, to the Jewish leaders in Rome. Now skipping down to verse 23 and 24, we read, And when they had, had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers, and he was explaining to them by solemn, solemnly bearing witness about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus, from both the law and Mo of Moses and from the prophets, from morning until evening. And some were being persuaded by these things, but others were not believing. That was 23 and 24. And finally, hopping down to verses 30 and 31, and he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence unhindered. So, we have a most unexpected and kind providence as Paul, who wanted so badly. What did he want so badly when you read the book of Romans? He wants to get to Rome. What does he want to do in Rome? He wants to strengthen and encourage them, and he wants to see gospel fruit. And what's happened? Paul, who so badly wanted to travel to Rome and preach Christ, has done just this, only by way of chains. But it was these chains that afforded him a range of audiences and ears, a range that would produce this testimony to the Philippians that, again, so that my chains in Christ have become well-known through the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. So once more, that is an extraordinary testimony, but one that continues from its influence among the public to its influence within the believing community. And so he continues on, and that most of the brothers... We've already recognized and appreciated this term, brothers. That's, that's those of us within the unity of the faith. And that most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord because of my chains, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. And so we get a kind of a, a picture here, as it were. It's like a faithful captain standing at the helm as, of his ship as he guides the ship through the torrents of the oceans, mightiest of storms, emboldening his crew. So also Paul's enduring confidence and resolve to stay the course had emboldened others too. They're looking to him saying, he's holding the line. He's being faithful. The Lord's sufficient. And what's happening? They're being emboldened and they're preaching Christ. And what we see is that what would naturally produce fear has invigorated confidence. Again, that's extraordinary. That's not the way he probably would have mapped this out. But it was exactly what the Lord had for the gospel advancing to Rome or further advancing to Rome. Again, Paul's courage to speak the word of God without fear has awakened a like confidence in most of the brothers. And just what is the nature of confidence? Well, it's the, the fruit or outcome of being persuaded or convinced. Again, being persuaded or convinced. Two other uh, common ways that we see this term expressed in other texts. So Paul's speech and conduct 
have persuaded or convinced most of the brothers that the Lord is sufficient and that the Lord is good and and that he's worthy of having his excellencies proclaimed. He, by speech and example, has, has modeled this. He's persuaded them. He's moved them to like action. Now, we could pause here and consider the nature of Paul's testimony for a moment. His story really could have been one of a great tragedy here. Something to the effect that, man, he, he started so strong. He, 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 was, he was our guy. You know, the, the Pharisee of Pharisees that turned and that now he's one of us. But the champion of the gospel of the Gentiles, he's been sidelined. He's been sidelined by, by an unfortunate series of events that have cost him years of fruitful service and may ultimately cost him his life. And he speaks to as much in Philippians chapter 1. Where he says, you know, to live is Christ, to die is gain. He knows Caesar's decision has his life in the balance here. What a tragedy. But that was not his story, was it? No, it was that while laboring in chains, a grace that the Philippians joined him in, he proved to be the catalyst for the emboldened service of others. Again, these brothers saw Paul suffer in something of his suffering for Christ, his suffering for the gospel, his suffering for the hope of the resurrection. These things, they, they awakened a proper confidence and courage within them. Now, this alone, again, that's, that's amazing to me, but especially considering the looming troubles that would be coming for Rome in the years ahead and were likely already being felt by those present in the capital of the empire. Here and at this time when the the clouds began um, growing heavier and, and lower and dark, the believers were emboldened by the chains of Paul. And now they have far more courage, far more courage, an abundance of courage. Perhaps they possessed courage for the work before, but they have been all the more emboldened now. There's something here that's, again, important to remember, too. It wasn't just, wow, they they looked at Paul and, that's our guy. I'm going to be like Paul. I think there's more to it than that. And he explains as much. And it's important to remember here that this was a confidence, not in Paul, not in themselves. They have a confidence in the Lord. A confidence, again, not in themselves or in Paul, but a confidence in the Lord. Now, as you well know, many people develop a self-confidence. They work hard at it. And, you know, there's, that's, that's, to, some, to a large degree, that's healthy. You, you pull out of this parking lot, you need to have a healthy degree of self-confidence or you're going you're gonna to be a danger to yourself or others. You don't need to, to pull out in the traffic here with, with this crippling trepidation. So self-confidence, that's, that can be a healthy thing. It can, can help you negotiate life in a skillful way. But this supersedes such a natural confidence as it is a confidence in the Lord. And Paul speaks to this contrast of confidence directly in 2 Corinthians, a passage that, not unlike this one will, in the verses to come, also looks to the shared service of prayers for one another. And in 2 Corinthians, um, excuse me, in 2 Corinthians, he goes on to state, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of our affliction which came to us in Asia that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even to live. Paul wasn't one to just use exaggerated language. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves that we would not have, so that we would not have confidence in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who rescued us from so great a peril of death and will rescue us, he in whom we have set our hope, and he will yet rescue us, you also joining and helping us through your prayers on our behalf, so that thanks may be given on our behalf by many persons for the gracious gift bestowed on us through the prayers of many. 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 11. And we see this again, perhaps even more clearly in Paul's writing to Timothy. In 2 Timothy 1.12, he states, For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Paul was confident in the Lord. He was confident in the Lord who will keep him. But let's consider what Paul writes to Timothy a little bit more fully as there was plainly some measure of confidence needed and some bolstering that was required of him here. And so we continue on. We see in 2 Timothy 1, 7 through 14. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and self-discipline, Therefore, do not be ashamed of either the witness about our Lord or me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, 
who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which he has given to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been manifested by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. For this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced, again, that he is able to guard what I have entrusted him until that day. Hold to the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Paul was confident. And there's some people that just walk through life, and they are just confident folks. Maybe a little overconfident, but they are confident people. But Paul was confident not in himself, but in the Lord who keeps his own. And this confidence in chains invigorated the confidence of many others. And in what way did this great confidence manifest itself? By speaking the word of God without fear. The very thing that Paul asked while in chains that others would pray that he would do well, that he would do faithfully. We see this in Ephesians 6, 18 to 20 praying at all times with all prayer and petition in the Spirit, and to this end, being on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints, as well as on my behalf. Pray on my behalf. For what? That words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, so that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. And we see it again in Colossians 4, 2-4. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well. For what? That God will open us a door for the word so that we may speak the mystery of Christ for which I have also been bound, that I may make it manifest in the way I ought to speak. So do you understand? Do you understand that that, that kind of testimony from, from words to actions to prayer was emboldening for others, emboldening for others to speak the word of God without fear? And what an amazing report to be able to share with the Philippians. You know, we, we get missionary emails, letters, and reports, and sometimes they'll come in person. And the tragedy with, with, with missionary reports is that they spend years and years in service, and then they like, three to five minutes, don't go too long. We have snack time. Like, okay. And they share. And what are you gonna, you're going to share your highlights, right? And they're not as good as this. What an amazing report. What, to be able to, to write to the Philippians and encourage them and embolden them, these dear and precious friends. And how wonderful it would be just to stop here to conclude that this Gospel and Chains update with this magnificent encouragement to finish verse 14 and then, okay, we're not going to finish verse 14, so let's just hop over straight to verse 18 and, and maybe we can read something like this and that most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord because of my chains have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear Christ is proclaimed and in this I rejoice that would be the missionary report we'd be like yes let, let's, let's get behind this guy this is exciting this is not confusing this doesn't muddy the waters this is, this is grounds for joy unambiguous joy but this is God's word, and we're not at liberty to make such a leap, are we? You can't just avoid the gap there. Well, that's a really difficult part. I wish he didn't put it there, so let's just pretend he didn't. We're not free to relieve the tension that's coming, the nodding of the stomach as we read words of a peculiarly painful nature that there are some, as in there are some brothers who are, pre- who are preaching Christ from envy and strife out of selfish ambition and thinking to cause Paul affliction in his chains. Boy, that changes the tone of the report, doesn't it? You can imagine them reading. Their, boy, they get through those first 11 verses. Oh, so precious, so good. Love these letters from Paul. Oh, look at that boldness that he's invigorated in others. What? Some are preaching Christ from envy, strife, and selfish ambition, and they're seeking to cause you affliction in your chains? He's got to be the most miserable person. And in this I rejoice. Okay. Is he confused? Does he understand what's happening? So just when we get over being stunned by this nasty blow, we're then puzzled to see Paul's conclusion again. And this I rejoice 
What a peculiar tension we have walked into. Maybe you understand now why I'm not dividing this passage up. If I left us here, that's a mean cliffhanger, isn't it? We've got to resolve this. We've got to understand it, and then we've got to resolve it. So he states, some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. Okay? So we have some balance here. They're not, they're not only bad actors being addressed here. So that's encouraging. But what do we make of this? Well, contrary to what some have concluded, whether we can make sense of this or not, Paul makes no break in his engagement here to qualify a change of direction or of the identities of anyone who he will now be speaking about. He is in some manner or another speaking of those whom he has called brothers. And again, good commentators, good teachers, good friends would say, no, that doesn't work. We have to, there's some division in the text here. It doesn't necessarily, it's not required grammatically. It's not required contextually. It doesn't flow with it, but there's got to be a break here. But my respect for criticism is we don't have to rescue Paul. We might not resolve the tension, but we don't have to rescue the word of God. Okay? It's just what it is, so let's walk through it. Because I think this is plain enough that these are the same people that he's already referred to. He's large category, referred to them as brothers, emboldened brothers to preach Christ. So again, I would say this is plain enough, if for no other reason than his advancing the matter of speaking the word of God without fear. He's already talked about that now. I think he's just continuing that conversation, a matter which he now goes on to further develop by explaining how this is being carried out. So some are emboldened to preach Christ. Some, some unambiguous, doing it correctly and well with good motive, but there are these others. There's some who are morbid in their motivation, others who are pure. So the offending party having no concept of well, I would argue they have no concept of what Paul expressed even of himself in 1 Corinthians 9 where he stated in verses 26 to 27, Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. What a, a terrifying, a terrifying prospect of preaching in vain, of having one's identity as a brother questioned. And rightfully so. Just consider the company of their expressed character. Romans 1, 28-29. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to an unfit mind to do those things which are not proper, having been filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips. Romans 13, 13 to 14, let us walk properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. 1 Corinthians 3, 2 to 3, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you were still not able, for you're still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? Galatians 5, 19 to 21. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Titus 3 3, for we ourselves are excuse me, for we ourselves once were foolish, disobedience, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, despicable, hating one another. So what do we see here? We see the nature of their carnal motivation is not ambiguous. What is ambiguous is their identity. Now, what of their identity? Well, they, they don't appear to be Judaizers. You get to chapter 3, I think he may be confronting some Judaizers there. We're the, the true circumcision and, and uh, those who, versus those who mutilate the flesh and, and esteem the law over and actions. Oh, okay, the, they're not Judaizers, though. They don't even appear to be false teachers. And how can I conclude this? Because Paul credits them with, quote, preaching Christ. And he even goes on to rejoice in the fact that they are preaching Christ. And I cannot resolve that tension. 
You can write a commentary, a book, or talk about it for hours and hours. I, I don't know that you're going to resolve that tension. Because they do not appear to be brothers either. But, but are they? I don't know. But I would be terrified to be the object of this discussion as well anyone should be. What a, what a talk about nightmares for people to be sitting around and saying, are they a brother? I mean, look at them. What a mess. Now, parsing who these persons are is plainly going to be difficult. And again, may will never be resolved, but both William Hendrickson and Homer Kent contributed, I would say, an interesting observation to this discussion. Both independent resources, both came to a light conclusion. I thought it was helpful. They, they each noted that the church in Rome, it was already well established. We know that from Paul writing to the Romans before this. And this was most plainly a prominent city, and the leaders in these churches likely had a degree of notoriety. And perhaps some, certainly not all, but perhaps some were caught up in what I've spoken against in our own contemporary experience, this idea that it was, quote, their ministry or their churches. But it was not. It was not their ministry. It was not their churches. And it never will be their church or their ministry or my church or my ministry. It was and is and always will be Christ's church, and therefore it was and always will be Christ ministering through his people in his church. But if you drift toward these ideas of my ministry and my church, and you are effectively, you're the big fish in the pond until, poop, a bigger fish just landed in your pond, and you don't get much bigger than Paul, even when he's in chains. Then, what may happen? Well, the animosity might just begin to fester. So perhaps not unlike today, there was some resentment, some efforts to protect one's, quote, vision of ministry. That's not my, I have my vision of ministry. Paul says, look, this is the vision of ministry, folks. Christ has preached. It assaults the vision of ministry. It assaults one's personal fiefdom for Christ. Personal fiefdom for Christ. Well, that's what people make of it. Their churches, their ministries, and when they fight to protect it, so the message stays true while the motivation goes sour. And such persons miss what Gordon Fee expressed so well, quote, but in Paul's case, it is his theological convictions that lead both to his theological narrowness on the one hand and to his large heartedness within those convictions on the other, precisely because he recognizes the gospel for what it is, God's thing, not his own, and that it should be added also stands up excuse me, and also stands quite over against many others who think of themselves as in Paul's train, but whose passion for the gospel seems all too often a passion for their own correct view of things. Oof. Summarized. This is how Paul can be narrow in his theology, broad in his heart, and why you're missing it when you're fighting to protect your kingdom, your views. But there's another side to this story. Thankfully so. Let's, let's back off that tension a little bit. He's going to give us tension, resolve, tension, resolve. He says, the latter do it out of love. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. So the contrast of motivation is about as severe as can come from envy, which would be a perverse selfishness and strife, a spiteful and antagonistic disposition, to now love, self-giving care of others. They knew that Paul, again, was uniquely appointed for this work. And the Philippians naturally would know that Paul was appointed for the defense of the gospel as it was part of their shared ministry with him, be it support or otherwise, as we have observed in verse 7. For it is only right for me to think this way about you all because I have you in my heart since both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you, Philippians, are fellow partakers with me in this grace. And as you may recall, defense and confirmation, those were commonly used in the context of legal matters. However, this is also a matter of teaching, too. Removing obstacles, that would be the, the apologia side of things. The removing obstacles from one's argument or position and providing a conclusion, that would be the declaration that is supported by truth and facts. So defending and confirming. That's what you do in a legal context, and that's what you do in a teaching context. And this also appears to emphasize the complementary role that's underway in the source of his joy as Paul is effectively defending the gospel while others are primarily proclaiming or confirming the gospel, neither work being to the exclusion of the others. Now, is he proclaiming it? Yes. But by default, by the nature of his chains, yes, he's proclaiming, but he's also defending. And he's emphasizing, this is what I was appointed for, 
to be defending the faith, to remove obstacles, to go to the Jews and say, look, it wasn't because of an offense against our nation, but for the hope of Israel. He's defending the faith. Now, Paul has already established that he's doing both, again, defending and confirming the gospel, and that such is the nature of their own partnership with him. But now, again, he is emphasizing his defending the integrity of the gospel, a gospel that has been assaulted by the religious community as deficient for not demanding the imposition of the law, and by the secular community as being divisive, a divisive sect of Judaism, a rebel-rousing affair that simply needed to be resolved for public order. And I would argue, in turn, that the faithful brothers, the faithful brothers are plainly busy about the work of proclaiming. So you have defense and proclamation. And what's he saying? They're emboldened to do what? To declare, to teach, to make known, to declare, proclaim the gospel. Proclaiming or confirming the truths of the gospel that Paul himself was defending. And yet another critical contrast to draw here is that rather than pursue his affliction, these brothers fellowshiped him with it, fellowshiped with Paul and his affliction. We see that, well, we will see it in 4.14. Nevertheless, you have done well to fellowship with me in my affliction. They're not stirring it up and causing it. They're joining him in it. Those are the faithful ones. But now he continues. He continues, uh, continues with this painful contrast. The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives thinking to cause me affliction in my chains. Now I kind of wonder, do we, do we need to keep painting this picture of them? Because we can, Romans 2, 5 to 8. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourselves in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will repay to each according to his works, to those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and anger. 2 Corinthians 12, 20, For I am afraid that perhaps when I come I may find you to be not what I wish and may be found by you to be not what you wish, that perhaps there will be strife jealousy, outburst of anger, selfish ambition, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. And as we've already observed a moment ago, Galatians 5.20, again, the deeds of the flesh, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, and factions. Or even as we observed in James, remember James, not all that long ago, what's the nature of the wisdom from below? But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not coming from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil practice. And if such language of having selfish ambition were not clear enough, he goes on to drill down with a rather natural conclusion that their motivation is not pure. And finally, he states that they suppose or reasonably conclude that they will cause Paul harm. He is plainly, in this regard, their adversary. Yet they proclaim Christ. Their aim is to cause them tribulation, suffering, affliction. And I can't, get the, I can't get past the fact that such is the indisputably, absolutely enemy territory and strikingly clear. It's not ambiguous. Well, you know, lots of people have different thoughts and, and opinions on things. No, this is their malice intent. And yet, in some way or form, Paul affirms that they are preaching Christ. Maybe you hear Paul's words differently now. Than it is, that is, his words from Acts 20, 22 to 23, as he's preparing to come to Jerusalem. There we read, And, behold, and now, behold, um, excuse me, now, behold, bound by the Spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. He hasn't gotten to this yet. I don't know what's going to happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that chains and afflictions await me. Who could have imagined, who would have thought that such troubles would have come from those who preach Christ? I can only imagine the Philippians hearing these words here. Some of them feeling hot with anger. I think that would be my default. And I'm not saying, oh, isn't that great? I'm not proud of that, but I would be mad. They'd be fighting mad now. You don't do that. I can imagine maybe some weeping with grief. The, 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 the affliction that Paul knew was coming it was by those who preach Christ. And some feeling as though they are in a fog, unclear how to make sense of these things. 
but, but Paul hasn't finished yet, has he? He's only stated the facts. He's not given his response or conclusion. Not yet. So then we might ask, okay, Paul, you've, given the, you've laid out the case. You haven't given your opinion. You haven't given your conclusion. What do you have to say about all of this? What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. And pretense. Well, that makes it plain enough that they're preaching Christ. It was a facade. That they did not really have sincerity in this as they plainly could not, and it is clear that such conduct was not misguided. It was, again, it was malice. So it's almost all the more puzzling, this esteeming of the outcome over the means. And William Hendrickson, he, he, tries, to help, uh, he tries his hand at helping with some resolution here. And, and I'm inclined to think maybe he's right. I, I think maybe um, when he first asks and then states that he might be right, he might be on something here. He states, but is it possible then that such selfish individuals can render service to the gospel in any way? That's the question. Can they be useful to the gospel in any way? Yes, for it must be borne in mind that those who hear them do not know what Paul knows. The, listener only, the listeners only hear good preaching. They do not see bad motive. Now, this is not, this is not to be mistaken as a, an endorsement on any level, as this is not an endorsement of the preacher, but of the message. That is, if the message be the gospel. And here I, I just want to cry out, Lord, that you would deliver your church from good preachers. At least the good preachers with bad motives. If, you're, if your reputation is, oh, they're a great preacher. My thought is, so what? Can you peel it back? And what a terrible thing to answer for when giving an account, not to the chief visionary officer or the chief orator, but to the chief shepherd. But let's also not lose sight of the faithful, of those who preach in truth, of those who mimicked the faith and faithfulness of Paul, who could rejoice even amidst such a muddled mixture of malice and purity because Christ is proclaimed. Because Christ is proclaimed, that seemed to be enough for Paul. And if that leaves you puzzled, then I think Gordon Fee's observation may help you some. He stated, quote, he stated of Paul, quote, here's one for whom the gospel is bigger than his personal role in making it known. I really like that. Again, here is one for whom the gospel is bigger than his personal role in making it known. Now, let me briefly flesh this out some. We're, coming, we're soon coming to a conclusion here. The, the gospel was not simply the, the center of Paul's work, and it wasn't simply a major element of his life. It was his life, and he knew the nature of its cost. And we come to see this when we, we continue reading what we cited in Acts 20 a few moments ago. I, I stopped. I stopped, and I did it on purpose. I wanted you to, to feel a measure of, of pain, a rightful measure of pain. But we're going to go past that now. So let's return to Acts chapter 20. We're going to read now through verse 24, 22 to 24. And now behold, bound by the Spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that chains and afflictions await me. But I do not make my life of any account, nor dear to myself, so that so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. I know chains are coming. I know afflictions are coming, and that's okay. That helps me understand his conclusion. So let's come to a conclusion ourselves now. And as we do this, we must appreciate that understanding the elements here are hard enough, but application may be even more difficult. But I think we can bridge some gaps close enough to wrestle well with what we have here. And with this in view, I think, uh, I think to a few engagements in the Gospels. The first is when Jesus effectively tells John, leave the man alone. What are you talking about? Well, in Mark chapter 9, verses 38 to 40, John said to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to hinder him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not hinder him. For there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able to soon afterward to speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. John, leave the man alone. 
The second was when Jesus directs Peter to put away your sword. In Matthew chapter 26, 51 to 52, And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Peter, put away your sword. So again, John, leave the man alone. Peter, put away your sword. And here in our text, the quintessential apologist, the man who more than you or I, more than the most successful blogger or parachurch rock star or conference speaker could say, he was appointed for the defense, the apologia of the gospel. And he knew when to leave a matter alone. And he knew when to leave a sword sheathed. And perhaps key to those decisions were that he adored the gospel over his reputation or any other lesser concern. So his judgment was not clouded when it came to a mature valuation of a necessary fight because we all know the man could fight and his integrity and love would not afford him to ever back away from a necessary fight. So when expressing that he was rejoicing here, he introduces for us a necessary tension. And with this, he also reminds us of what he is pressing toward in this letter, a unity of mind in the Lord. Because when we share a common joy in this principal objective, we cannot get or we can get over the lesser things. Maybe even when the lesser things are nothing short of malice treatment of ourselves. Not to say we're aloof or unaware or pushovers, but that we are vigorously pursuing the humility of Christ. A humility that Paul not only will speak to in chapter 2, but a humility that he exemplified, a humility that allowed him to have a clear view to the field, as it were, the scope of what was before him, and in such also have a clear vantage point too. One that could roll with the punches while bearing the chains because Christ was proclaimed, and in this he rejoiced. And if the tension of this bothers you, well, you're in good company. It's hard to resolve, and I'm not sure it can be taught so much as it has to be caught on this one. Because it's not a skill that is mastered so much as it is a transformation that must come with the seasoning of prayer and study and wrestling and time with our Lord. It's the stuff that Moses was made of. As we saw in Numbers 12 when his fellow leaders and siblings challenge his unique standing only to have this fascinating nugget of, tr- of commentary dropped in for us. And what does it say? Now the man Moses was very humble more than any man was on the face of the earth. Numbers 12.3. And then what is followed up here? It's followed by Yahweh taking up Moses' defense. Not Moses, but Yahweh. It's the stuff that John the Baptist was made of as his transformational ministry was slowly being overshadowed by another. And his evaluation of this, when, when John's ministry was being shadowed by someone else, he must increase, but I must decrease. It's the stuff of sanctification, the sanctification that Paul has just prayed for these beloved believers to mature in, as I know he would have desired for you too, so that you might join the company of those who produce a peculiar tension of such great joy in Christ's exaltation, a joy that requires us to get over ourselves and out of the way, a joy that does not cultivate your vision or your church, but a joy that is rooted in seeing Christ's vision for his church. And that that's what we seek to have advanced. An advancement that comes with a proclamation of the gospel. And when that's accomplished, we can rejoice. Let's pray. Lord, I think back to Paul's conversion and how hard those words would have been. Paul, it's not, Paul, why are you persecuting me? It's not easy to kick against the goads and he doesn't understand the nature of of Christ and his church. He would very, very soon and he'd go and articulate it in such a masterful way. And so I think about these persons who perhaps they're they're under the umbrella of brothers and maybe they'll get expelled from that. Maybe I don't know. They're they're there though and to have to, to give an account why why are you hurting my church? Under the pretense of preaching Christ, do you understand what you're preaching? Lord, have mercy that we wouldn't declare that which has not first been apprehended in our own hearts and with the necessary humility that has to accompany any true understanding of the gospel. But at the same time, understanding 
the hope and the joy of Christ crucified and Christ resurrected would press us to a place of humility that it would be a very peculiar life that we live, a very peculiar testimony that we can roll with hardships and frustrations and struggles, but also rejoice. Not later, even in that moment, rejoice that Christ is preached. Lord, that you would so help us to see the value and the glory of such things. We need your help, and we pray that you'd be pleased to give us that to the end, that you'd find us ready for your, your day, and then in that day you would be made much of. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.